Thanks for choosing this podcast for the BJSM community. I'm Karim Khan, the editor of BJSM, and I'll put the conversation you're about to hear into context. It took place after Lorimer Mosley had completed a one-day course for the remedial massage therapists of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, and he and I wanted to raise this issue of teaching of pain science. Is it being done well? Now, to really know how pain science is being taught, we asked a medical student, Daniel Friedman, to be on the conversation with Lorimer, and I think you'll really enjoy the slant that he brings to the conversation. So after my first question, you'll hear Daniel join in and give us that authentic perspective of someone who isn't a fully trained clinician yet. First question that I threw to Lorimer is, can you discuss whether pain science is being well taught in physiotherapy and medical schools today? I really have no idea how it's being taught in most medical and physio schools. Uh, However, uh, if the question was how do I think it should be taught, what sort of role should it have, uh, I actually think it should be in in the fundamental courses. I think neuroscience and neurophysiologists should not trivialise pain by calling nociceptors pain fibres. I think that's a critical mistake. I think that that the way we teach neuroscience, I, I think we should start with a contemporary model of brain function not with a Sherringtonian model of physiology, so referring to Sherrington's beautiful work looking at the way different peripheral nerve fibres operate. But if we start there and we mislabel nociceptors as pain fibres, by the time we get to the central nervous system, we've got to start undoing stuff. And this is before they even get clinical training. If we were to go to the clinical courses, the physio, the medicine, all of the allied health, I guess, uh, I would... I would really love to see people teaching that, just being precise in their language, to, to not say pain pathways, pain receptors, because it's unhelpful for patients when we try to undo that stuff. Uh, and I guess to, to really embrace the biopsychosociality of the human, to acknowledge the important role, influential role of nociception in pain is fantastic, and, and we can learn a lot about nociception, absolutely. But... The evidence to support a biopsychosociality of pain is so overwhelmingly strong that I would love to see that being front and centre uh, of our undergraduate and, and fundamental pain training. It's a massive challenge. I don't know what's happening really. In physiotherapy, our university does, does many, many hours of pain science. Uh, the physiotherapists who come out of our university are, in my view, as strong on pain science as anywhere I've travelled. Uh, across the road, we have a university with a medical school. My understanding is they've just shifted from one hour to eight hours on pain science in their curriculum for their whole degree. And then if you consider that a, a GP will will see many people in pain every day, I think that's gobsmacking, absolutely gobsmacking. So I don't know, but, but you know, Daniel would have insight into this that, that I don't. So let's ask Daniel. Thank you for having me on this podcast. So... I couldn't agree more. I think that at medical school throughout the years, pain and nociception become synonymous terms. And I think that we are using these terms incorrectly, as you're talking about. And we learn about pain from a physiological level. We learn about it peripherally. And we learn about it so that we can prescribe to prevent it. And I think that our fundamental understanding as you've been explaining to listeners today and at the conference today, is just wrong. 
And so I think it starts with how we're using these terms. And you spoke today to the conference about some of the wrong terms and the more correct terms, speaking about relativity. Could you share with listeners about some of those wrong and more correct terms you were talking about today? Yeah, well, you know, they're inspired by the the writings of Patrick Wall from 1980s that uh, all of the times that we say pain receptor, we mean nociceptor there, right? Unless we actually do believe that pain exists in that tissue and travels to the brain. That's the implication. If that were true, we could remove the arm, surgically remove the arm, put the arm in one room and the human that used to own it in another room and it would be the arm that has the pain. And no one thinks that would happen. You know, no one thinks that would happen. The pain is produced by the brain. So the terms that we often use that I think we should be giving each other aversive stimuli to try and remove them from our lexicon are pain receptors, pain pathways, uh, descending pain control. Uh, these, these, sort of, these are nonsense terms because pain is a construct that, that happens in consciousness with an effect and I would say with a purpose, but the Darwinian in me would say nothing has a purpose, it always has effects. Uh, but I reckon that's, a, I reckon that's the, the critical problem is that by the time you start to embrace the complexity of the brain and the biopsychosocial human, uh, pain is something that has been, been planted in the tissues and travels to the brain. And I'm sure there are people listening to this who will respond by saying, oh, look, it's semantic. Patients will never understand that difference. And I say, I say to them, well, show me, show me any evidence to support that statement. I'll show you good evidence to support they can understand it. I'll show you good evidence to show that when they misunderstand it, their life is worse. I'll show you good evidence to say when they change their understanding to get it right, their life is better. So any, any accusation of this material to say it's too complex or it's just a semantic issue is, in my view... Uh, heresy really i mean it's it's so false there's no data to support it anyway that's my high horse on this and i i bang on about this all the time and i have uh respectful but sometimes exasperating debates with pain scientists who publish papers about pain receptors uh because there is no such thing a term you mentioned before was bioplasticity in contrast to neuroplasticity which is something we hear a lot about at medical school could you expand on what your understanding of bioplasticity is yeah, cool. Thanks, Daniel. Um, I don't think I made up the term. I think it's been, been used elsewhere. Uh, but it certainly reflects my own uh, intrigue that we get so excited about the ability of the nervous system to change its function and structure according to stimuli and activity. Uh, that is amazing. It, I mean, neuroplasticity is amazing. Uh, but our muscular system changes if you give it demands, our respiratory system changes, our immune and endocrine system change. Uh, all of our systems change. We are one changing clump of cells, uh, and that's the bio. And uh, I would like to, us all to be a little bit more embracing of, of the capacity of all of our systems to change their structure and function with a change in stimuli when with activity. And so that's what bioplasticity refers to. It's, uh, it's not a unique concept. 
It's just trying, I guess, to use that hook of neuroplasticity to expand our, our realisations. Something that clinicians hear a lot from patients is, you know, I've got a very low threshold or I've got a very high pain threshold. And so, you know, they're asking for different sorts of drugs, different dosages. How would you respond to someone coming to you saying that I've got an either low or high pain threshold? Is that terminology correct to even use? Ah, that's a really great question. I must admit that when when I hear from someone, I've got a very high pain threshold, it's a bit of a heart sink moment to be honest, as a clinician, because you think, okay, uh, there, there's a lot being communicated in that statement, right? Uh, you ask the question, is it an accurate statement? So it all depends. And uh, one, of the, one of the clinches on the, on the idea of a protector meter, so this idea that we have an inbuilt protection meter, is a, I think it's a cool capturing of contemporary pain science, uh, but if you understand the protector meter, then pain threshold doesn't move, right? But our conventional understanding of pain threshold really looks, really presumes that uh, there is a fixed intensity of a noxious stimulus that will cause pain. So what, what people are really saying is that my th- the, the point of the, the intensity of a stimulus at which I will hurt is either very low, and that would be a low pain threshold in their understanding, or very high. The problem is that we could get the one individual, give them a stimulus you know, uh, of intensity X that evokes pain, three seconds later give them another stimulus of intensity X that they don't notice because of the, all the other inputs into their brain at that time. Not necessarily us intentionally distracting them, or that would work, We do experiments in the laboratory that clearly show high variability between stimulus intensity and pain. If we do enough trials, we get average data. But uh, the idea of someone saying to me, I have a high pain threshold, all that, I mean, all that tells me is that there are many modulators of of the need to protect. Uh, I think usually what people mean when they say I have a pain threshold is... I feel, I am convinced that I tolerate a lot of pain. Uh, And that's actually, for us pain scientists, that's a different thing. That's pain tolerance. Pain threshold is when do things hurt? And that depends on everything that's going on in your system at the time. Uh, Pain tolerance is, is how much pain are you prepared to tolerate before you take action to stop it? And again, that's very contextually specific. Uh, when I think when patients talk about their pain threshold, they are talking about pain tolerance because none of us really have an ability to determine our pain threshold. We, we don't have that capacity. So if it is the elite athlete or the weekend warrior coming to you saying, look, doesn't matter, I'm still in pain, can you prescribe me something for that? How does your area of work then translate into what we're seeing now as an opioid pandemic yeah so the the opioid situation is uh, a major public issue obviously Uh, there are so many contributors to that now obviously I'm I'm not allowed to prescribe anything I don't have a medical qualification my understanding of the biology tells me that uh, opioids are very good anti-nociceptive agents very good they are simultaneously pro-inflammatory agents within the nervous system 
uh, and the the clinical data, as far as I can make sense of them, are that they are likely to lose their anti the, the benefit of their antinociceptive effect in less than a week. Uh, so I think there's a real role for opioids in very acute management because they they have some effectiveness. Uh, now I'm not a pharmacologist or a medic, and that's probably really important. In fact, I can certainly see uh, that opioids. But they have they have they have neurons that accept exogenous opioids and their antinociceptive neurons. Fantastic, and that should result in analgesia or all other things being equal, which they never are. But let's say they were. Uh, but we also know that opioids ap- activate TLR4 receptors on gl- on astrocytes around nociceptive synapses and have a pro-inflammatory effect. Uh, and if you haven't had Mark Hutchinson on it yet, you should to talk about these, the, these pro, this pro-nociceptive effect of opioids, but it's just via a different receptor time. Uh, so back to weekend warrior or elite athlete who says, prescribe me something for that, I guess my response to that would be why? Why, why? There's, there's no evidence that it will help you, there's no biological argument that it will help you. Uh, and this is, a, this is an issue that is really important in the elite sports space. Uh, because a lot of drugs are prescribed uh, and a lot of beliefs are firmly in place about the effect of those drugs, but they're not informed by modern contemporary pain science. And if I can jump in there, Lorimer and Daniel, as we bring this towards a close, I can't uh, help just alerting back to Lorimer's role with the International Olympic Committee pain consensus meeting in Lausanne, which is published in BJSM. But maybe a comment on your thoughts on that document and we can guide people to it. But in the context of athletes, we know getting addicted to pain drugs. So you're in a good position to comment on that. Yeah, I mean, that was a, a really important meeting, I think, and a really interesting group of people around the table. Um, I guess my voice was was one to represent contemporary pain science, uh, and I guess also to give some insight into what I would describe as, as modern physiotherapy involvement uh, in elite sport when it comes to pain management. Uh, it's a really complex situation, obviously, but the, I guess the, the key messages that came out of that group are that there is a problem in elite sport. There are better ways to go about solving it, uh, and those ways can draw a lot from the non-elite population, but they begin with understanding, and uh, it was remarkable how little data we have from elite sport uh, and we need to collect that data. So there are, there are you know, formal networks of, of good quality scientists who are now trying to embark on this, but it's a challenge to negotiate because these people are elite athletes and, and doing experiments, well, there's a lot of fear that it will compromise their performance. Some of those fears are unfounded, but some of them are, are legit, legitimate, I think. Um, but I think, I mean, that I, I would encourage people to read that document and, and, and really those people working in elite sport to see what they think about it because it was a consensus meeting of people who had a pretty good representation of relevant fields, but I know enough to know that management of persistent pain in elite sport is done very differently uh, club to club, let alone sport to sport or country to country. So uh, there is a lot of faff out there 
but I imagine there's also some pretty good stuff, pretty good operators, and it would be great to hear from them as well. Thanks, Lorimer. And I wouldn't mind just touching on one population um, as we close, because there's the population with myalgic encephalitis and chronic fatigue syndrome, and we've tended to push mechanotherapy and exercise as essentially a panacea, like we rarely say that it's not helpful. Um, but I know in clinical practice there are flare-ups, and Jill Cook talked about tendon problems that can be flared up too much, so we do monitor that in real life. So I think for the podcast community, um, is there a caveat where we need to be careful about promoting exercise, for example, um, and maybe with that group in particular where they would argue strongly that in the trial relating to exercise, you know, patients have done badly? Yeah, I mean, I, that, a lovely question and, and, a, and a group, a population who uh, is, is still on the edges, I reckon, and... Uh, face disadvantage within our health system. Um, I'm no expert on ME or CFS. Um, I have some thoughts on on the, the, the feeling aspect of those conditions, the feeling fatigued, and those thoughts would, would mirror my thoughts on pain. That fatigue is, is a feeling that's produced by the brain when the brain perceives that that will be a beneficial feeling, just like pain, exactly the same. The problem, I think, is is misunderstanding that and somehow illegitimising the feeling, and that's that's the real damaging uh, naivety, I think, within the the health field as well as other areas. Uh, as far as exercise goes, I, I I I don't feel confident commenting on on the benefit or not of exercise per se, but I feel confident. Uh, in, in making the contention that naive exercise would surely be bad. Uh, and what I mean by that is uh, giving people an understanding of what's happening in their, in their body should inform and, pro- and come before an exercise exposure. Uh, I don't know enough about the, the, bio- the contemporary biological sciences of those conditions. Uh, but someone probably does, and and we have a challenge now to get those messages into health professionals' minds, into patients' minds, uh, because I I just make so much sense intuitively to me that uh, movement, mechanical loading, and cardiovascular load, like movement and activity, is good. Um, it's a challenge for me to make sense of of why it's bad for those people in some situations. And, and I suspect that understanding the nuances of the biology will give us solutions to some of those things. Yeah, so a humble answer in saying that we acknowledge that patients have very real phenomena going on, which can manifest as serious fatigue and serious pain. Um, so as always, Lorimer, you've given us some clear messages when the data are clear. You've been honest to say there are things we don't know, which is why research in the field is so exciting, and you're combining that research with knowledge translation and uh, new discoveries. So congratulations. Thanks for your time on this BJSM podcast again. And um, I'll also say thanks to Daniel Friedman for his contribution. 